you would take your Bibles and open with me to John chapter 2, verse 13 through verse 25. John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. There we go. Answering to Jesus' authority. We all have to answer to authority, whether it be a police officer who pulls us over, or in a couple of months, you will have the opportunity to fill out the U.S. Census card when they come to your door again. And you have to answer your ten little questions about how many people reside in your residence, and... Maybe some more random questions. They've asked random questions in the past, and they might do it again. But you have to do it. And you respond to the authority because it's uh, required. And if you don't respond to the authority and fill out your census, uh, there is a huge fine that accompanies not following the authority. And in our text today, Jesus is going to assert his authority. And me and you are responsible for not simply hearing his assertion of authority, but we are also responsible for answering to his authority. So the big idea is to answer to Jesus' authority. If you would take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25, and we will read that text. Now the Passover of the Jews were at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen, and sheep, and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Verse 20. Then the Jews said, It has been 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and needed, had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for what you teach us through your word that you are a God who is in authority not over only the temple complex, but over every area of our lives. We pray that we would realize this truth and that we would be willing to submit to your authority in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. This is the 
first recorded miracle, public miracle of Jesus. So if you notice last week, the miracle that he did was actually kind of uh, hidden from the main people. Most people did not see the miracle. But instead, um, this one is actually the first one that is very public and everybody who was in the area could see it. And there's actually two cleansings to the temple. So there's this one, and then there's another one that's in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, okay? And so this one occurs at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the next one will occur at the end of Jesus' ministry. And the temple was the center of the Jewish worship ceremonies. And they were actually required to have all the men come to Jerusalem once a year for the Passover. And that is where we are. Verse 13 tells us that we're at the Passover. And so it's the Passover and Jesus and his disciples, those who accompany him, are going down to the temple. But when they arrive, the purpose of the temple was neglected. And it reminds us of what Mark says. While we can't understand this to refer to um, this same inst instance, Mark tells us that the same problem was happening three years later at the end of Jesus' ministry. Jesus went in and cleansed the temple a second time, and he said, Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, and you have made it a den of thieves. Okay? So Jesus rebukes them at the beginning, and he says, that you have made my house a house of merchandise, and it's supposed to be a house of prayer. And then at the end, the house of prayer is a den of thieves. So the house's purpose was neglected. And so the purpose of the temple was for singing, for worshiping, sacrificing, and giving to God. And yet, the purpose now was commerce. And so Jesus is angered by the misuse of, of his father's house. And what does Jesus do in verse 13 through verse 16? The text says, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. He makes a whip, probably out of some of the rope that was used to tie up the sheep or something else like that. And he makes this whip out of material that was easily accessible. And he goes on a righteous rage spree. And he just shoes everybody out and tells them, get out. This is not the purpose of this location. And they leave. And we might be a little shocked by that because we, we tend to think of Jesus as a meek and mild person and we sing a song around Christmas that talks about Jesus being meek and mild. And Jesus is meek and mild. But this passage really should remind us of Exodus 32 verse 10. And you see God the Father respond to the Israelites in a very similar way when they choose to disobey him at Mount Sinai. This is what God says to Moses in Exodus 32. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them 
and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Moses, get out of the way. I'm going to use you. I'm going to make you into a new nation, and I'm going to destroy the rest of the nation of Israel. And so when we have simply an idea of Jesus as meek and mild, it's not complete. Jesus is meek and mild, but he's also the coming, conquering king. If you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 12. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 12. And this passage tells us what happens when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. And it isn't all meek and mild. It's far more anger is demonstrated in this text than is demonstrated in the temple. And yet, Jesus is righteous in doing this. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. When they see Jesus coming, they're afraid. Verse 8, and they will be afraid. Pangs and sorrows will hold, will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. Everybody gets wiped out. Everybody dies that is in rebellion to God. Jesus is angry, and when he is angry, it is righteous. But the big idea that Jesus is establishing here is that they were dishonoring his father. By dishonoring the temple complex, they were dishonoring God the Father. And so dishonoring any aspect of Jesus' authority, whether it be how we worship, how we go about our day-to-day -day life, and really, our day-to-day -day life is supposed to be a living sacrifice. When Paul talks about bringing yourself and offering yourself as a living sacrifice, he uses the word is actually the idea of spiritual worship. Our whole lives are supposed to be aspects of spiritual worship, and Jesus lays claim on all those. And when we fail to obey his authority, it's an act of disrespect not only to the Father, but also to Jesus. And so Jesus is passionate about his father, and we should as well. Note verse 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. It's the same type of terminology we use. When something's really bugging you, we say something's eating me up. It's the same type of idea. Jesus is passionate about his father. And so it leads to him telling them, you need to make changes. And the Jews realized, the religious leaders of his day realized that Jesus is not just simply saying, you need to change the way you worship. They realized that he's making a far greater claim than, well, what you're doing really isn't how I would like you to worship God. They realized that he's making a claim to being somebody other than another regular man.
And you see that in the following verses. They bring an assault to Jesus' authority. Verse 18 through 21. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? How dare you, Jesus? How dare you? That's what they're saying. What makes you have the authority, and how do we know that you have the authority, to come into our temple, where we are the religious leaders, and to tell us that we're doing it wrong and we've been doing it wrong for a while? How dare you? What's your authority? Seeing a claim to authority, then, the religious leaders approach Jesus and ask what proof he has of his authority. They don't like it. They've been come in. Jesus has effectively told them, what you're doing is wicked and disrespectful to God, and it's not accepted. And he cleanses the temple, establishing his authority. And they, instead of coming before him, bowing and worshiping, and professing him as the Messiah that they have longed for as a nation, they come up to him and say, well, what sign do you have? What's the proof of your authority? You want a sign, he says? Obey the command. Destroy the temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. Jesus' response is recorded for us in verse 19. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. You might be thinking, like they were, well, that's a pretty big claim. Because this is a temple that's been, been being worked on by 18,000 men, it is estimated, from 20 B.C. until A.D. 64. That's like 30 years later. So the Jews say, in response to Jesus' comment, the Jews said, verse 20, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? They're mocking him. So they respond in skepticism. But it's because they fail to understand that he is not really referring to that temple, but he's referring to his own body. And this desire for a sign, this desire for proof of Jesus' authority, is a common problem among the Jews. So much so, Jesus' death and burial, he says, is his ultimate sign. That's what he's going to say, especially in verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. But ultimately, this is a problem that is occurring over and over again. And Paul writes about it when he writes the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 through 25. And he says, not only do the Jews have a problem, but the Gentiles have a problem as well. The Jews want a sign, but the Gentiles want a logical explanation for everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so this is a continual problem that the Jews have. And signs and wisdom abound in defense of the faith that was once for all delivered. There are plenty of signs. And there is plenty of logical defense that can be made to defend the wisdom of the gospel. There are plenty of apologetics groups that do that. But ultimately, those don't lead to true faith. You say, well, how do you know that? He didn't provide them a sign. Yes, he did. Let's skip ahead to verse 23. This is while Jesus is still in Jerusalem, and this is what happens in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, the same time period, at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. The signs. He did numerous signs while he was in Jerusalem. And yet they rejected all those signs, saw his claim to authority in the temple yard, and said, we need more, Jesus. It is not enough. We reject your claim to authority. We want more signs. Those signs are not enough. And so if you say that you're going to wait for more signs, or if you're going to wait for more logical defense, there is plenty of that. And I'm happy to sit down and talk with you about all that. But if you're waiting for that, that doesn't bring true, genuine, saving faith. It didn't bring it for them, and it won't bring it for you either. Genuine faith is something that God brings about in our hearts. And it's not something that I can maneuver into your life or that somebody else can maneuver into your life by explaining to you a logical argument for the Christian faith. And it's not something that if you could say, well, if only I could go back 2,000 years and see the signs that Jesus did, that does not guarantee that you would have saving faith either. The religious leaders saw the signs that he did in Jerusalem. And the idea that is actually communicated in verse 23 is that he was doing these signs. It was a continual action. It's not past. It's a continual action that he was continuing to do these signs. They saw his claim to authority, they rejected it, and wanted another sign. And Jesus says, my ultimate sign is, when I die, I'm buried, and I raise again in three days. That is the ultimate sign. That proves my authority. But by then, so many of them were unwilling to accept it, and they just rejected it ultimately. But not only do you have an assault to Jesus' authority, you also have answers to Jesus' authority. So there are responses recorded for us to what happened during the cleansing of the temple. Verse 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But... Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of him, of man, for he knew what was in man. 
There's two different responses that are recorded. The disciples had already believed. We saw that last week. After the miracle, if you would, turn with me to John chapter 2, verse 11. After the miracle of changing the water into wine in Cana, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples already believed. And yet, we see their faith is growing through the scripture and the word. And the actual idea here is that they saw his words and they believed in those words. And the actual word is that they believed in a scripture. We don't know what scripture it is. The text doesn't tell us. It just says, Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said. He had said this to them, and they believed the scripture, one scripture passage, and the word which Jesus had said. There's a number of passages that have been recommended. We can look at them. We ultimately don't know which one of these or if there was another one that the disciples remembered and their faith grew in as they remembered it. But if you would turn with me to Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. God didn't allow Jesus to stay in the grave, but he rose to, raised him from the dead. It could be that he's referring to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. If you would turn there with me, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and many intercessions for the transgressors. Or it could be that he's referring to Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will revive us up, that we may live in his sight. We don't ultimately know which scripture their faith grew in. But the response to the sign wasn't, I need more. The response was increased faith. And increased faith results in increased works. It's like Zach was reading earlier today. Faith without works is dead. And so the disciples increased in their fervor and desire to proclaim who Jesus is. But the disciples' response is not the only one there. There's another response that is recorded for us too. Many in Jerusalem also answered with disingenuous faith. Their faith was not real. They saw the other signs, the same signs that the Jewish religious leaders saw as well, but they were enamored by it. It's the same danger that we saw in chapter 2 with the miracle at Cana. There is the danger that we would be enamored by the signs and yet never come to true saving faith. And that's what happens here. Verse 23, 24, and 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. 
especially verses 24 through 25, we see that Jesus knows our inner thoughts. He knows what we're thinking, and he knows whether or not we come in genuine faith. And it's a theme throughout the Gospel of John that there is a need for a witness. There is a need for a witness. You see John the Baptist, he serves as a witness. You see some of the early disciples come to Jesus and their immediate response is they go and they witness and they bear testimony to who Jesus is. And it's really interesting. Verse 25, And Jesus had no need that anyone should testify or should witness of man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus doesn't need a testimony about us. He knows us intimately. Just like he knew Nathaniel, he knows me and you. And he knows whether or not we come seeking another sign or if we're willing to just place our faith in him and say, Jesus, I realize that I am a sinner. I stand condemned before you. And yet you have provided your son's death, burial and resurrection, to take my place, to take my punishments. And I place my faith only in you because none of my efforts can satisfy your demands. Have you responded to Jesus' offer of salvation? Have you come in genuine, true faith? If you haven't, I would urge you, talk to me, talk to one of the deacons, talk to another lady here today. Be certain of your eternal destiny. Don't wait for signs or wisdom to place your faith in Jesus. That's what the religious leaders wanted to do, and it didn't work out well for them. There were other signs that they could have looked at in verse 23. Many signs. And yet they rejected those signs, seeking a sign from Jesus. And the sign that he offered them, they were skeptical of. They mocked him. What does the text mean for us? Jesus is in authority over area, every area of our life. How we approach worship, yes. But if that's all we get from the text is we need to approach worship differently, we've missed out on so much more because his authority is over everything. If you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Jesus lays claim to everything and says that he is preeminent. He is the first one, the first placed. This is talking about who Jesus is. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, that are in that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Jesus is first place. First place in every area of our life, and he accomplishes that 
through his shed blood. If you go a couple verses over in Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, we see that Jesus is first place in how we work. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. Jesus is first place when it comes to your children. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Jesus is first place when it comes to our efforts in evangelism. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. These are Jesus' final words before the ascension. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Going, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The command isn't to go. The command is not to send disciples. The command is to make disciples. Are you actively making disciples? If you say that Jesus has authority over your life, are you following him? As a church, we want to equip you to make disciples. I would encourage you to seek someone to disciple. In the back of the church, we have a couple of Bibles and also John studies laid out. I would encourage you to pray about who you can pick up a Bible for and give the Bible to them and meet with them for just four weeks and do the John study with them. Begin the process of making disciples. If we say that Jesus is our authority, should we not obey him and make disciples? We believe that what we have is something that everybody has to believe in or else they face a crisis eternity in hell. And yet, what do we do about telling others about this message? We have to be involved. We have to be passionate about bringing others to Christ. Have you answered to Jesus' authority claim on your life? Are you following him? Are you submitting to him? And ultimately, the big thing is, have you personally placed your faith in who Jesus is? Are you leaning on him as your hope for eternal life? Or are you leaning on the fact that you're here this morning or you had a good mom or some other thing that maybe happened in your life? The only thing that guarantees and the only thing that can guarantee your hope for eternal life is you placing your faith wholly and completely in Jesus' finished work for you and me. I would urge you, to be certain that you have done that this morning. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you are a God who is in authority over all areas of our lives. We pray that you would help us to see that, and as we see that, that we would be willing to obey you in all the different areas of our lives. We pray that ultimately we would 
realize our own individual need for you as our Savior and that we would be willing to come in humble and genuine faith and receive your free gift of salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.